Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. We need to clear our minds. Why don't we do that with prayer? Gracious God, make us curious as to what is your will, what is your word. Amen. As you heard in that uh, children's sermon, I recently finished reading a book. I didn't tell you about the book, but it was about Leonardo da Vinci. It was written by Walter Isaacson. My daughter Paige often recommends books for me to read, and she recommended this one. My hunch is that length is at the top of her criteria for what to recommend to me. She just cannot seem to find it in herself to recommend a book that's not at least 500 pages long. This one on Da Vinci um, is approaching 600 pages before it even gets to the end notes. And nevertheless, it's just full of fascinating information about a fascinating man. Da Vinci was someone who could not be contained by a pandemic. We actually know this because he lived through several of them. He self-quarantined multiple times during a series of bubonic plague resurgences. But when he was physically constrained, his curiosity liberated him. Oh, he would paint, of course, but he also explored any area that captured his attention, whether or not it was practical, and whether or not it could earn him coin. Here's a fascinating example. I alluded to it in the children's sermon. During one bubonic plague outbreak, he was self-quarantined. He certainly would not go about the streets of the plague-infested city of Milan where he normally lived at that time. Milan's streets were narrow, dirty, congested, crowded, hard to navigate without constantly bumping into people or garbage. It was an ideal place for the plague to spread. Well, Da Vinci spent his time thinking about that, thinking about what a city would be like that would be efficient that would be safe and even more beautiful. He studied it, and, and he, he dreamed of it, and he started putting his ideas on paper. I showed one of his drawings earlier in that sermon. The city that he imagined would be on three levels, with commerce separated from living space. A network of canals would flow on a subterranean level so that goods could be delivered directly to business basements. And then on the first tier above the basements, there would be space for retail and for commerce and trade, as well as stables with ventilation and easy cleaning. And then on a second tier, there would be residential and leisure space. It didn't matter to da Vinci that his cities would not be built. He enjoyed the creative journey. 
And that's just one example of many examples of how da Vinci's playful curiosity kept him unstuck. He performed autopsies for fun. After a day's work, he would go to the hospitals at night, and and he, he did autopsies of cadavers, and he drew pictures of what he saw. He drew pictures of bone structures and muscles and veins that were as accurate as they were artistic. Isaacson says that if those drawings had been published, the study of anatomy would have been advanced by at least two centuries. He designed scuba gear and flying equipment and submarines, armored vehicles, parachutes, mirrors that would focus light to create heat. Hardly any of this was for pay, but simply because da Vinci's curiosity called the shots. Here's the thing about curiosity. It might simply begin with what fascinates, but can surprisingly lead to real-life uses. In his anatomical drawings of the mouth, you can see early sketches on the sides of the page, early sketches of that famous Mona Lisa smile. You see, without his planning it, curiosity allowed not only him, but later scientists and engineers and artists to become unstuck. And the concepts and principles behind what he imagined would later be used, the concepts and principles behind his imagined city are studied by city planners to this day. Curiosity is as important for a person of faith as it is for anyone. And incurious faith is a dangerous thing. And incurious faith leads to that bad faith that shuts down rather than opens up. Faith that is dogmatic, unthinking, blind to new truth, and so easily led by cult figures. A curious faith doesn't get unstuck, though. A curious faith opens the mind and heart to new revelations and to a deeper love of the mystery that is God and the potential brother or sister that is one's neighbor and even one's enemy. I want you to imagine something. Imagine a theologian and poet thousands of years ago standing on his roof, studying the night sky simply for the joy of it. Then there comes this night when his study gets him unstuck. He has a spiritual epiphany. He composes a poem that we now know as Psalm 8. Listen for the word of God as John Robinson reads this poem for us. Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babes and infants. You have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands, You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That psalm is short. It took less than a minute for Johnny to read it, and yet I know that that poem came of hours, hours of studying the night sky with a curious mind and a heart of faith. I didn't tell John this, but I chose him to read this psalm because he and the writer of Psalm 8, I think, are kindred spirits. Johnny worked as a dentist. He retired recently. But most of us know him for who he is outside his office hours. His curiosity has taken him around the world into different hobbies, from sailing to hang gliding, and into study of whatever it is that interests him. And as with the poet of Psalm 8, John is a writer and a man of faith, so that what he sees and experiences in life becomes fodder, for his prayers and for his reflections about being a child of God. And that's how I imagine the psalmist. After spending many playful hours on his roof, studying the textbook of the night sky, and asking what might seem to be idle questions about what he sees, such as, what is the distance between that star and me? Or why is it that the stars shine? He begins then to wonder about the one standing beneath them, asking those questions. Stars, the psalmist think, in their own unthinking way, give praise to God. But he stands there under the night sky as someone who has some sense of God's will that involves more than the distance of star to eye, but also the distance between injustice to justice, the distance from enmity to reconciliation, from fear to hope. And yes, the sky is so expansive, seeming to have no boundary, and he is so, so small, can travel only so far, and yet he feels not only created, but claimed, not only alive, but loved. Not only as one who sees what is in front of him or above him, but also one who has been given a vision of what by God's grace might be. Not only someone who hears the sounds of the world around him, but someone who has somehow heard a word from God, a word about who he is called to be and how he is called to live. And realizing that all this is possible because somehow, somehow, he's entered into a relationship with the one who created all of this. Though he feels physically small, he feels spiritually large, a little less than angels. Have you ever had those experiences? I know you've probably had the experience when you feel so very small, less than a dime. Perhaps you've read something about galaxies and light years or looked out over the Grand Canyon for the very first time or heard someone say something that dismissed you as a person of no value, making you feel like a speck. We've all experienced belittlement. But I bet you have had, I hope you have had, the Psalm 8 experiences where you have been made to feel large 
And it didn't happen because of you, you were overly inflated, that your ego was overly inflated, or because you believed the lies about yourself meant to flatter you, meant to make you think that you're bigger than you should think you are. But it's because of something that touched you and made you feel special, some human or divine touch, or maybe some insight, or maybe some participation in a cause bigger than yourself. It, it opened you up. It expanded you. Maybe you heard something, and then you learned something, and it felt like the sky above you has somehow reached down to you. Or maybe it was when a parent or a child or a sibling, boyfriend, girlfriend, a grandparent, a dear friend smiles when you walk into the room, and suddenly you feel like you've grown three inches. Or maybe you went full on Psalm 8 and you felt a personal connection with the God of creation and you felt precious or loved or special in those eyes. And then you feel connected not only with God, but then you somehow feel connected with other people around you who have had that same kind of experience. You feel connected with people of faith through the centuries. And now not only are you large, but your world, your community, your church is large. Do you feel stuck these days? I believe many do. I think that many feel stuck in the rough realm of the three P's. Pandemic, politics, and protest. Travel has been restricted. Places are off-limit. Folks spend less time hunting and gathering for what they need and now have all that stuff delivered to their front door. It's convenient, but it's isolating. And then stuck inside, sometimes you get stuck in the news. Depressing. What can you do? My suggestion that I've been talking about this whole service is to be curious. Follow T.H. White's advice, advice that he puts in the mouth of Merlin, giving advice to young Arthur in White's novel, The Once and Future King. The best thing for being sad, said Merlin to young Arthur, is to learn something. You may see the world about you devastated by evil lunatics or know your honor trampled in the sewers of baser minds. There's only one thing for it then, to learn. Learn why the world wags and what wags it. That is the only thing which the mind can never exhaust, never alienate, never be tortured by, never fear or distrust, and never dream of regretting. Learning is the only thing for you. Look. What a lot of things there are to learn. And so, following the example of Robinson, da Vinci, and the psalmist, learn. Be curious to get unstuck. Be curious frivolously and be curious seriously. Be curious frivolously because you'll never know when an imagined dream can become a possibility when a casual study of muscles and nerves leads to a Mona Lisa smile, 
when wonder at the stars leads to a theological insight or personal one, when the exploration of something beautiful and elegant leads to an insight of what it means to live a beautiful and elegant life in this world. Is it time to explore that subject that interested you but which you didn't think would earn you coin? I'm never going to be an architect, but I studied it recently, and it deepened my theology. It widened my world. Is it time to get to know the mind of Jane Austen and explore England and civility through her novels? Just to hazard a guess, those novels might remind us of the benefits of grace and civility in difficult conversations today. Is it time to pick up an instrument and learn to play it or to learn to play it better or to pick up tools and try to create something on your own or try to learn how to fly through a computer simulation? I am almost certain that there will be unexpected discoveries about truth and life that won't come if those hours are spent being diverted and seduced by talking heads on TV. That's the amazing thing about good curiosity. It gets you unstuck by both being an escape and by being a means to engage. Being the means to engage is what I meant when I said that curiosity can be serious as well as frivolous. When facing the hard parts of life head on, curiosity becomes a great help to get you through. For instance, are you overwhelmed sometimes by the news of the virus spread, how many infections they are, what the death count is? Well, let curiosity lead you to the scientists and health workers who can give you the truly helpful information about how best to stay safe, how best to keep other people safe, about policies that might work, and also that will keep you abreast about the hopeful developments of treatments and vaccines. Are you overwhelmed by politics and protest? Curiosity will lead you past the artificial divides and diatribes. It will help you dive into the humanity of issues and help you eventually find common ground beneath the arguments, the ways different sides of issues reflect each other's mistakes. Curiosity also will eat away at your own bias or prejudice, or ignorance? Do you feel stuck in a sometimes uncurious faith that believes that things need to be just so, and when they are not, leaving you feeling abandoned, spiritually alone, betrayed, when both God and the world are not behaving as you had already decided that they should behave? Well, Curiosity will destroy an unexamined faith, but is the virtue that can lead to a deep faith in God as a mystery and to truths that are better described as revelations than certainties. It will lead to the kind of faith that is grounded not in certainty but in love and guided by grace and fueled by hope. I'll close by offering this. It's been said that in difficult times, we should pray about it. And I agree. 
Aside from humility, curiosity is the most important virtue in being able to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Powerful prayer, powerful transformative prayer that can bring insight and wisdom and healing and reconciliation is curious prayer. Pray then like this, Jesus said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I'm curious. What is God's kingdom? What does it look like? What does it look like in our world? What does it feel like? What what is God's will? That kind of prayer is exactly what we need to do. Be curious about what God sees and wants. Be curious about what it is that God wants to change in the world, what God wants to change in me. The prayers of a curious faith will keep you from getting stuck in fear, hatred, and demonization. It will break through, get you unstuck, and carry you to God and to others and in meaningful engagement with the world. I've heard some people put down prayer in hard times, saying that the time of prayer is over. It's time to act. And I respect that call to action. But curious prayer is action. It may seem frivolous, like standing on a roof and looking at the stars, but by opening windows into the mind and heart as to what was previously unimagined or unheard, it is an action that can lead to changed minds changed hearts, changed lives, a changed world. So maybe from now on, when I say, let us pray, hear me also say, be curious. It will help you get unstuck. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus. Jesus.